And Father, we ask that now as we sit to hear your word, that your word might shape us and mold us. God, would you expose us and comfort us? Would you encourage us and direct us? Speak, O Lord, your servants are listening. And we ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So when I was in sixth grade, it was 1996, and uh, I was on the basketball team. Now, I know it's shocking because uh, if you would have seen me back then, I hadn't even had my growth spurt yet, and so I was just a, a, a short guy. But, but, you know, I was really into the NBA, and these were the glory years. I mean, this was showtime with Magic and Kareem and James Worthy. Come on. And, and we, had, we had Larry Bird, and then, of course, we had the greatest of all time, Air Jordan. And I remember, if, if you were to ask me, you know, like, what do you want more than anything else? You know, I was in sixth grade. Like, what, what do you want more than anything else? I think I probably would have said a pair of these. So I had a friend in school who had a pair of Jordans, and I remember I would see these, and I would feel when I would go to school, I would be like, I really, 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 really want a pair of those. And it seemed like that was probably the thing I wanted more than anything else. Now, it wasn't the only thing that I would want when I'd be at school. Uh, I also, incidentally, uh, would want my mom's lunch that she would prepare. And I don't know if anybody else relates to this, but I just remember being voraciously hungry by the time like, I, it was like 10 o'clock and just read, I would like start to sneak into the lunch. I had a brown sack lunch with a tuna fish sandwich and some Doritos, which is like, that's like a, a combination made in heaven, is it not? And uh, you know, I don't know why I actually put this image up here. This looks like uh, some lunch that some hipster mom might prepare for her. <laughs> up in Seattle or something, you know? It, it almost looks vegan, you know? And so, I want you just to consider with me these two desires that I had as a sixth grader. On the one hand, a desire for Air Jordans and a desire for lunch. And I want you to think with me about how these two desires differ. So, this image <laughs> represents my desire for my lunch. Uh, Natalie Wiley said it looked like I was drinking a beer, but I wasn't drinking a beer <laughs> in sixth grade. The other image represents my desire for Air Jordans, and they're different in this. My desire for a, for a sandwich arose out of within. It was, a, it was a desire that was born from my anatomy and physiology. And I just desired to eat because I had internal desires to satiate hunger. But the desire for Air Jordans was different. This was not born out of anatomy and physiology. Rather, this was a coerced desire. Uh, there were forces outside of me in the culture that I, were, I was unaware of as a sixth grader that were, was shaping and manipulating and coercing me to want a pair of red and black and white tennis shoes and to make me think about it all the time. Now, of course, I wasn't alone in that, and I've not been alone in that. We could probably all name things that we, we feel like we had some like, desire to get this product or to look this way. Sometimes you look back on how you dressed back in the 80s, for example, and you're like, I don't know what force around me coerced me to dress like that, but it was something strange outside of me. Maybe it was even demonic, um, but... <laughs> 
But you know, the text that we're looking at today forces us to grapple with the question, what are the forces, what are the powers outside of us that are shaping our desires and our wants and our values and our priorities? You know, I know a lot of us like to think that we're individuals. You know, we live in America where we just, we believe in rugged individualism. But look, none of us are nearly as much as the individual we like to think we are, are we? And so many of our wants and our desires and our preferences and our values have been shaped by the culture we inhabit, by forces outside of us. Harvard professor uh, Joseph Nye makes a distinction between what he calls hard power and soft power. He said hard power is coercion by brute force. And so this is power that's enforced by a violent might of a military or maybe through harsh sanctions, you know, economic sanctions, but then there's soft power, and soft power is an altogether different beast. He describes it like this, soft power is, quote, the ability to shape the preferences of others. And in our culture, our tech companies, our corporate marketers, Hollywood, and especially Instagram are masters at soft power, aren't they? Masters at influencing and shaping the preferences and desires that we find arising within us that didn't originate within us. They came from without by these forces. And the text that we're looking at today is going to force us to think through what, what are the influences that are shaping your life? What is shaping your preferences and desires? What is, what is shaping the things you value? And the text that we're looking at is, is inviting us to consider that question. You know, the, the scripture uh, in, in the book of Romans, it says this, do not be conformed to the world around you. In other words, it invites us to be a community of resistance, a community that simply doesn't passively acquiesce and lie down to what the forces are around us that are seeking to coerce us and manipulate our desires and wants. Instead, we're invited to name those things and to resist them. And in the text that we're looking at today, it puts this issue like this. The author says this. This is in 1 John chapter 2. He says, do not love the world. You could say, do not pursue the things of the world. Do not love, go after, devote yourself to the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, immediately when we read this exhortation, uh, we wonder, what does John mean by the world? I mean, isn't the church supposed to love the world? I mean, doesn't God so love the world? What does it mean that we're not supposed to love the world? Well, in the Bible, the word world has kind of a broad semantic range, and it's used in different senses. There's different meanings that are given to it. You know, in our own culture, in our own day, we have many words that have a broad semantic range that have a variety of meanings, though it's the same word. And so, for example, the word fall. You know, I might fall in love. I might fall back. And look, the leaves are turning gold. It must be fall, right? And it's the same word, but it has different meanings. And so too, the word world, though it's the same in the New Testament, it has a variety of different meanings. And there are three key meanings that the Bible has when it uses this word world. And it's the Greek word cosmos. And the first word, or the first use is simply this. It, the, the word world simply refers to the created universe, 
the planet we inhabit. And so, for example, it says in Romans 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the what? World. God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood by what has been made so that people are without excuse. So here, the world is understood not as an enemy that we should be against, but as a friend. It's the very theater of God's power and his divine nature. It's a daily signpost to God's reality and his wise and generous creative intelligence and love. You know, a few weeks ago, I was up in Big Sur and just cruising around Big Sur and driving along the one there, you're just overcome by the beauty of creation. And so sometimes the Bible speaks of world in that sense, speaking of the physical, material world that God called into existence. The second way in which the Bible uses the word world is to, re- is to refer to the world of people, you know, the world of humans <laughs> that inhabit this planet. And of course, uh, in John 3.16, uh, the author iconically wrote, for God so loved the world. And what it's speaking here is of God's broad heart of unconditional love for the human race. And of course, if God loves the human race, then we ought to love the human race. If God loves people, then you ought to love people. And so sometimes the word world is used to describe the universe or the planet. Uh, sometimes it's used to describe uh, the people, the, you know, the humans that inhabit the planet. But there's a third sense that the word world is used, and it's used in this sense in the text we're looking at today. And here it's not the planet or the people. Here, world refers to the system, a system of values and priorities and practices that shape and influence the people on the planet. Or we could put it like this, the word world or cosmos is is the social and cultural practices and institutions and systems that are built on lust and greed and human pride. In other words, what John is describing in our text when he says, do not love the world, is he's saying, don't love the system, the, the kind of uh, the, the social structures that are under the sway of and the perpetuators of distorted and destructive desires and hubris and insatiable appetites of, of, of consumption. He says, don't pursue and love the world in that way. One author put it like this. He described the world like this. I, this is, by the way, this is a lengthy sort of involved uh, description of the world, but I, I think you'll, if you pay attention, it has some payoff. But listen to what he says. He says, in this world, gratitude to the past and obligations to the future are replaced by a nearly universal pursuit of immediate gratification. By the way, the author at this point is describing the current world, the current, current society and culture we inhabit. He says, culture, rather than imparting the wisdom and experience of the past, so as to cultivate virtues of self-restraint and civility, becomes synonymous with hedonic titillation, visceral crudeness, and distraction, all oriented toward promoting consumption, appetite, and detachment. 
As a result, superficially self-maximizing, socially destructive behaviors begin to dominate society. You know, you think for a moment about my desire for Air Jordans. And in the 80s and into the 90s, there was some expose done on the Nike Corporation. And there was a documentary put out in the 90s called Beneath the Swoosh. And one of the things that it revealed is that uh, behind kind of like the big money contracts and all of the image and the celebrity connected with Nike and all of the middle, upper middle class kids who want their own pair of Nikes is a world of abuse and injustice of kids who are working in sweatshops who are being paid $1.25 a day, who live next to open sewers, and it's all hidden from view. And so, what's being stimulated is a desire for something, but what we're blind to is what that something is built on, the world of injustice, and this insatiable appetite for consumption is done in ignorance of the kind of systems that it's built on. And so what John is telling us to do is to resist the forces of conformity. Dr. Martin Luther King put it like this, who himself, of course, inhabited a culture and a time and place where the church oftentimes was being conformed to the values and priorities of the broader culture. And within this context, he said this, we as Christians are commanded to live differently We are called to be people of conviction, not conformity. People of moral nobility and not social respectability. We are called to a higher loyalty and to a more excellent way. And so do you see what he's calling us to do here? He's saying, look, you need to resist the forces of conformity and instead resist, instead pursue the practice of love of God and love of neighbor. You know, in the text, John actually connects the world system to three realities that I think all of us know something of and grapple with. Notice how he puts it in the text. He says, don't love the world or the things in the world. And he says this, for all that is in the world. So what are we talking about here with the world? He says, all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. Notice, I want you to see in the text, he's talking about three realities, three lusts or desires that end up shaping the current world system we inhabit. And he says the first is the lust of the flesh. And I think clearly what John has in mind is the distortion of sexual desire, where somebody who is created in the image of God and is created to love and sacrifice and be in relationships that are mutually beneficial and covenantally committed, instead approach other people not as objects of love, but as a commodity to satisfy one's own bodily desires. And he says so much in the world is shaped simply by the desires of the flesh. And of course, it's not just desire for sex, it's also the desire for food or drink or maybe even revenge because sometimes what your flesh wants is to be satisfied by putting them down or putting them in their place or getting them back and that feels good. And he says, so much of the way this world is organized, it's it's organized under the sway of the lust of the flesh. 
Secondly, not only the lust of the flesh, but he also talks here about the desire of the eyes. And if with the lust of the flesh he might have in mind sex, here he clearly has in mind money or possessions, greed, the desire for more. But of course, it's not just the desire for more and more stuff. It's also the envy and the jealousy that accompanies that desire. You know, it, it's what you feel when you, when, you, when you pull up Instagram and you see them on their vacation with that outfit or with that body and you just think, oh, it's all so perfect. They have such a perfect house and a, and a perfect vacation and a perfect body and I hate them. You know, because you're envious and you're jealous and, and the, 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 des, the desire, the lust of the eyes. The desire to gain more and more stuff, maybe sometimes to live a self-indulgent lifestyle or sometimes to build up a bigger and bigger savings account so that you can feel safe and secure because of all the money you've tucked away. So he says the desires of the eyes is shaping this current world system, the desires of the flesh. And then finally, he talks about the pride of life, the boastfulness of life. And here I think what he has in mind is building our identity on our achievements and seeking to want to self-present to other people and to present our greatness, how great we are, how much we've achieved, how much we've done. And uh, this is the, the braggart, the person who brags in your conversations, who always spins the story to try to one-up you and the story you just told the one who puts another picture on Instagram that's carefully curated in order to self-present a certain way, the politician, the entertainer, the celebrity that is so obsessed with image and how they present, he says, the pride of life. And what John is getting at is that this world system, our society, our culture is being shaped by these three distorted desires as they relate to sex and money and power. These three, these three great temptations are incidentally the three temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness. Do you remember Jesus in the wilderness experienced something of the lust of the flesh or was tempted in that venue? The temptation to turn stones into bread to satiate his bodily appetites? And then the lust of the eyes. Remember the devil took him up and set him before all the kingdoms of the world and he said, look at them all. All of this can be yours if you just bow down and worship me. And then the pride of life. Cast yourself down from the temple. Put on a dazzling display in order to build your celebrity status. So do you see the parallels between the temptations of Jesus and what John is talking about here. And of course, it goes back even beyond Jesus in the wilderness all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you remember their three temptations? The lust of the flesh was there too. See, this is good for food. It will satiate your bodily appetite. And it is pleasing to the eye. And it will, it's desirable to make one Wise, It will make you great, the pride of life. And of course, it goes back to the garden because in the garden, we meet this primal archetypal story that is our story. This has always been the three great temptations 
three of the great shaping factors in human life and society that are distorting and twisting life as it's intended to be. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say that everything out in our society and culture is twisted and distorted by sin. Uh, There is something that uh, theologians refer to as common grace, which is that the world around us and society and culture oftentimes reflects God's creational intent and his goodness because humans are created in God's image. And yet again and again, so often society and institutions are being distorted by these temptations for sex and money and power. And what's sad is that these temptations don't just affect institutions, you know, Hollywood and the entertainment industry or, um, you know, politicians and the world of politics and business and commerce and economics. These three forces are also infecting and twisting the church, aren't they? I mean, in the last year, it just seems like every week I open up another story of another pastor who's fallen into one of these three great sins, fallen into distortion, distorted use of sex, or money, or power. Entire church movements have been twisted by this. This is not something that's unique to like, oh, well, you just gotta, it's it's just in Hollywood. No, it's in the church. And John knows that, so he puts us on notice. He says, do not love the world. This is his first commandment, his first exhortation in this letter. It's as if he's putting us on notice. This is a real temptation, is that your ability to love others well is gonna constantly be under threat, will constantly be sabotaged by these self-centered desires that are twisted, that are gonna want, make, force you to wanna use people for your own satisfaction, to satiate your own desires at the expense of others. And John goes on in our text, look at what he says. And he wants us to see a couple things about this love for the world. And notice first, he wants us to see in our text that love for the world, this pursuit of the system, a way of life that's shaped by a distorted, these distorted desires, he says it cannot coexist with the love of God. Notice what he says in the text. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, he's saying you cannot serve two masters. Either you will love the one or hate the other. Your life cannot be governed by both the values of the kingdom of God and distorted desires that are perpetuated and and that that are forces out in our culture around us that are underneath the sway of darkness. He says you cannot serve both masters. You have to choose who you will serve. So he says, number one, he says, love for the world and love for God cannot coexist. And then number two, he says, this present world system, he says, it's passing away. Look what he says in the text. He says, the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. He says this planet with this beautiful human community that are underneath the sway 
of distorted desires that are moving us out into violence and using people and coercing people and the practices of injustice and abuse and great massive disparities between the haves and the have-nots. All of this, this sway that's distorting humanity as it was intended to be, he says that system that's distorting us as humans, good news, he says, it is passing away. The new age has arrived and the old age of death and darkness is doomed. When Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb early on Sunday morning, God's new creation broke into humanity right in the midst of this old broken world in order to put the powers of darkness on notice that a new power, the power of God, has broken into this world to overturn the forces and powers of destruction and to bring healing and renewal and to establish God's presence and love in all of creation. So he says this old present darkness is passing away. But he says the one who does the will of God will endure forever. He's saying, look, he says don't cast in your lot. Don't succumb to this old system. Instead, give your own life into the kingdom of God that is broken into this world in Jesus. Don't give in to the, the sway of this world to give in to your vengeance, but instead pursue God's way of forgiveness and kindness toward people who have even wronged you. Don't give in to the pull to objectify the other and use them for yourself, but instead view them as an image bearer who merits God's love and who you need to sacrifice yourself for. He says, don't give yourself over to the deceit and the lies and the self-presentation, but instead, just live the authentic life before people. This is the world to come, and the one who follows in this way will endure forever, he says. So he says, this current world, he says, it cannot coexist with love for God. This current age that's under the distorted use of sex and money and power, he says, it's passing away. But he wants us to know that the pressure to conform that comes from this world system we're in is subtle and it's incredibly strong. Can I get a witness on that? This present age, it's subtle and yet it is unrelenting. You know, it's true in our own lives. You know, there's a default mode where we can just succumb to ways of being with our money and possessions where, where we just think like there's not gonna be enough and I can't share and I gotta keep it for me and I, I'm just gonna keep going on in my purchases irrespective of what this might be doing to the environment or the systems of injustice that they're built on because that's just the way the world is and I can't bother with that. I'm gonna keep pursuing relationships or keep treating the opposite sex in ways through my use of any number of ways that objectify the opposite sex because it's just too strong and it's too ubiquitous and, and, and we can just give in. And it's unrelenting and its influence is subtle. And so we need to stand strong against it. And here's the thing. It is so subtle that sometimes you can be conforming and you don't even know. You know, what's disturbing sometimes for me, I don't know if you feel like this, but I find it really disturbing to read church history and to, um, I don't find it only disturbing to read church history. I also find it encouraging and um, 
uh, I also find hope in church history, trust me, but there are periods where very well-known theologians that I respect and that I read and that I like had completely accommodated to the broader culture when it came to the most heinous of sins. They owned slaves or they maintained an ideology of white supremacy or, or, or they just justified the marginalization, the marginalization and the abuse of women. And it's disturbing what was acceptable at different times because the church can become accommodated. And it's really easy to look back on them and see it with clarity. It's more difficult to look at the church today and to ask those questions, where are we conformed? Where are we compromised? And that's the work that we need to engage in. You know, and, and I think it's, 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 it's interesting because sometimes we can even find ourselves just giving into things or engage in practices, and, and we don't even know why. It just, it, it's just happening. I was, I was listening to an interview with a Washington Post columnist, a really brilliant uh, young uh, writer and thinker. Her name is Christine Imba, and she had just written a book called Rethinking Sex. And, and her argument in this book, I mean, it's just fascinating because she, she's writing for a secular audience but one of the things that she argues is she's like, in, in, our, in our culture, she says, we've thrown off kind of like the old puritanical age. We've said that, oh, it just produces so much shame uh, for people. And what we need is freedom and liberation. And she said, but what we've been left with is that the only governing moral norm when it comes to sex in American culture is the idea of consent. And she said, that's just not a, that's not a guiding moral norm that will lead you into the good life. Consent will keep you out of jail. And it's a, it's a good, like, base level standard. But it's not sufficient for helping people build healthy relationships that are marked by sacrificial, self-giving love. She said, you need a higher and a better ethic that will take you into the good life. And then she says, I, 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 I've, she, she went throughout the country and she interviewed so many different people kind of about their own experience in this arena. And she said, the funniest thing happened. She said, I, I, person after person I interviewed, she said, they all kind of had the same story. They described themselves doing things that they didn't actually want to do um, and engaging in this arena in a way that they just felt like it wasn't satisfying, it wasn't like meeting their deepest needs. And she asked them the question, why do you keep doing it? And she said again and again, they got the same answer. I don't know. I just thought I was supposed to do this. I thought this is just what people did. And sometimes it's just, we get so like immersed in this culture that we don't even start asking questions about what we're doing and why we're doing it and how we're doing it. And, and, and we need to ask fresh and new questions. Every generation of Christians needs to ask these questions if we're truly to be a community of resistance. Resistance to distorted desires that wreak havoc on human life, that sabotage our ability to love others sacrificially and well. We need to ask hard questions. So let me just leave you with this. If we're gonna be a community of resistance, I, I wanna just suggest it's gonna take three things. We'll hit these quickly. Number one, it's gonna demand critical reflection. We're gonna have to ask questions. Questions about what? Well, the first set of questions you can ask 
is how are my habits of entertainment consumption? How is my social media consumption? How is my consumption of talk show hosts and uh, podcasts? How is it affecting my own desires and my own values and my own priorities and how I think about the world around me? Is it leading you into deeper and deeper lives of faithfulness and goodness and intelligence and beauty and sacrificial love that looks something like Jesus? Or is it taking you in a different direction? If it is, you may be surrendering to love and pursuit of the world. And of course, we need to ask new questions about practices we engage in just in our life and how we talk to people, how we treat people, what we think is okay that flows out of our mouths when we're talking about people behind their back, when we um, are at the mall and out shopping once again or online shopping once again, ask like, am I just surrendering? Like, am I just conforming to forces outside of me? Or, or am, I, am I really living a life that's marked by sacrificial self-giving love? We need critical reflection. And this is reflection we need to do together. We need people in our lives who live differently, who make different choices than we do, that call into question our own choices. Amen? And so we need to be a community of critical reflection. But secondly, we not only need critical reflection, secondly, we need intention. You see, I think what happens in the church, and I'll just share about my own experience. We sit down, we have these hard conversations like, oh, yeah, yeah, we need to change. You know, we need to do, I feel so broken right now. You know, we're just like broken. We're just a mess. I'm a wreck, you know. (laughs) But are you going to change? Like, if you're going to change, you need to intend to change. It's not enough just to want to live differently, to want to resist forces. Do you intend to? I remember reading a a book a while back. It was called A Serious Call to the Devout and Holy Life. It was written in the 18th century. That book wouldn't get published today. But uh, in the book, the the author starts comparing his own generation of, of, you know, kind of like, Uh, peers, and he's bemoaning, he says, you know, the previous generations, they were so much more pious than current generation. And he asked the question, why? And he said this, if you will hear, stop, and ask yourself why you are not as pious as the primitive Christians were, your own heart will tell you that it is neither through ignorance or inability, but purely because you have never thoroughly intended it. Now, I'm sure there's some other factors involved there other than just intention, but intention matters. Do we intend to be a community of the kingdom of God that is shaped by the radical ethic of love that is embodied and in full display in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Dr. King said this. I was so inspired. I read this sermon this week by Dr. King. That's why I have two different quotes from him. But he said this, as for me, I must confess that there are some things to which I'm proud to be maladjusted. He said, there are places where I am maladjusted to the surrounding culture. I never intend, I never in what? 
I never intend to become adjusted to the evils of segregation and the crippling effects of discrimination. I never intend to become adjusted to the moral degeneracy of religious bigotry and the, the corroding effects of narrow sectarianism. I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give it to the luxuries of the few. And I think what impressed me is that word intend. He didn't intend. This was a man who lived with intention, and so he lived differently. And a community of resistance needs not only critical reflection, we also need intention, but we need not only critical reflection and intention, we also need grace. We need the grace of God. But here's the good news. You know, God in Christ entered into this created world. The world God himself brought into being, God became a part of his creation in the incarnation of Jesus. And then in Christ, God subjected himself to the dark forces of this world system. In the political system, through Pilate, who had him put on the cross, through the religious authorities that had him betrayed, he was subject to systems that had been, had been inflicted by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And he became subject to these dark forces and it ultimately put him on the cross. And on the cross, Christ bore in his own body all of the darkness so that ultimately he might break the power of the current world system that enslaves and afflicts the human community who God has set his love on, namely us, so that we can be set free, so that we can live into a new and a better kind of humanness a humanist that is marked by his own self-giving love. May God enable us by his grace to be those who critically reflect and who intend to be a different kind of community and who live into practices of disengagement and of resistance together. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we confess that far too often we have become accommodated. We are asleep to the many ways in which our own way of being in our relationships at home, with parents, with siblings, with kids, with neighbors, with people at work that we manage, with students in the classroom that we teach, God, we've, we've, we've given ourselves over far too often to self-centered desires. And God, we just pray that you would break the power of all of that on our life. That you would give us spiritual discernment, God, to see the ways in which we conform. God, that you would give us strength and the power and the courage to resist. God, we want to live lives of goodness and beauty in this world. God, enable us to become that kind of community, we pray. And we ask this in the great and in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.